Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as always. And John, we have a new case to tell the audience about this week, a case that Insulate filed this past week, uh, a complaint in the Western District uh, of Texas in the El Paso uh, division. Uh, The name of the case is uh, Lujan v. U.S. Department of Education or Lujan and Ahmad v. U.S. Department of Education, uh, Miguel Cardona, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Education, and Michelle Cooper, the Assistant Secretary for Post-Education uh, in uh, Cardona and Cooper in their official capacities are the additional defendants. This case is about the Fulbright Fellowship Program uh, that the United States has. It goes back to I believe it was Senator Fulbright of Arkansas, if I'm not not mistaken, John. Who that's uh, correct, and it, it was 1961 it came in, and that's going to yeah. be important. That's going to be important to the discussion later. But go ahead. Yeah. So the the idea behind the Fulbright Hayes Act of 1961 was to to support and promote uh, doctoral research in foreign countries using uh, a foreign language, and in order to to promote this, the Department of Education was going to be giving out these. Fulbright uh, fellowships. You you may have heard of these. Uh, if you're in the academic community at all, you definitely will have will have heard of them. They're prestigious. Maybe maybe not on the same, uh, you know, maybe not quite at the same level of prestige as a as a Rhodes scholarship or a Marshall scholarship, but still quite sought after and competitive uh, scholarships for for graduate students to uh, to study abroad. And the the particular problem that uh, that has emerged here is that in 1998, during the Clinton administration, the department put a new criterion into the regulations that are used to select who uh, will win these uh, these prestigious uh, awards. And uh, specifically what they did is they started penalizing uh, applicants for these who speak a foreign language because they grew up speaking that language. So we're talking here about uh, Americans who either uh, perhaps were not born in the United States and therefore grew up speaking another language in another country before moving to the United States, or perhaps they were born in the United States, but uh, because their their parents were still speaking uh, the language uh, of, of their original home country, they grew up also speaking uh, that language. And if you are uh, under the under the criterion that has uh, developed, the department gives uh, uh, up to 15 points for language proficiency as part of the of the competition here. Now, this is on like a 105 point scale, I believe. So if you, uh, you know, if you don't do pretty well on these 15 points, you're not going to be very competitive for uh, winning one of the awards. And what happens, uh, what happens with this new regulation is that uh, the the department has decided to give zero out of 15 points to someone if they acquired the relevant foreign language based on their 
national heritage. And there's a there's a lesser a penalty. Uh, they 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 penalize you uh, five points if you're, uh, you know, if for example you grew up in that kind of home, but you're not a fluent speaker, then they'll still penalize you a, a little bit. Well, the clients. So why is this why is this a problem? You may think, uh, well, this is perfectly appropriate. We want we want uh, English speakers to be encouraged to to speak a second language. Well, maybe that's the case, but that first of all, that's not what the statute says. And second of all, uh, there are other statutes, predominantly the the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I think, John, is what you were getting at when you were uh, suggesting that the 1961 date was significant for the uh, for the Fulbright uh, Hayes Act. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 says we cannot discriminate uh, based on national origin. That's one of the forbidden areas of discrimination. Go ahead, John. It goes. It's a little bit different from that. In 1961, what's happening? There's the Cold War. There's the space race. We're in this big fight with Russia, and 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 you know, going all over the world, the third world, Asia, all these places, um, where we want to be competitive and we want to have the best people in our State Department and our CIA and everywhere else. And so they put in this because they wanted to draw all these people who had a facility in more than one language. And the statute says nothing about this. And if you told uh, Fulbright or Hayes, it's Fulbright Hayes Act, or anybody who voted for this, that we were going to set up this kind of point system that then minimizes our chances of getting the top people in language who can who can meet with everybody in that country for for this bureaucratic point counting, they would have been incredulous. But here we are, forty years later, the Cold War is over. The reasons the statute got put in are kind of fuzzily understood by the agencies. And they're doing this. It's really insane when you it's given the language and the purpose of the statute. No, so I take your point. So, so the, the the very people that say the intelligence agencies or the Department of Defense would find most valuable uh, to to bring into government employ would be the people who truly do have uh, mastery of both languages. There's there's no reason to penalize someone who has this. Exactly. And one of yeah, and one of one of the things that our that we point out in this in this lawsuit on behalf of uh, of our uh, of our clients, uh, and again their their names are Edgar Lujan. Edgar was uh, was born in in Mexico, is a fluent Spanish speaker, and, and wanted to uh, to get a Fulbright to study in Spain. And our other uh, our other client is Samar uh, Ahmad, and Samar is fluent in in Arabic uh, after having. Uh, grown up, I believe in Kuwait, uh, Vec, and wanted to study in Jordan. And uh, and again, uh, because uh, Samar is is fluent in Arabic, this was this was uh, held to be a negative uh, thing. And so neither one of them qualified for the the Fulbright scholarship, at least in part, if not entirely, because of this uh, this lack of of fifteen points. So uh, the the uh, uh, and and I th- I think I might have said uh, it's it's Ms. Ahmad. I might not have I might not have said that uh, correctly. But she's a, a doctoral candidate in uh, the history department uh, at uh, uh, at Georgetown, and um, Mr. Uh, Luhan is a doctoral candidate in the Spanish department uh, at Georgetown. So, but both of them are uh, uh, are facing the same sort of national origin discrimination as a result of of what's going on. Uh, what's going on here. And I, I think that 
we've seen this before, John. We've seen this where agencies will take a statute that has been around for a long time and they'll just decide to essentially edit the statute without going back to Congress. They'll they'll have their own purposes as an agency. Apparently in the Clinton administration, they decided that there were too many of these uh, a sort of uh, uh, Americans born elsewhere who were getting the Fulbright uh, scholarship and not enough native born Americans were getting the scholarship. And so they, they decided to, to rig the, the criteria a little bit to make it easier for native born Americans uh, to win uh, the scholarship. But to yeah. your point, yeah, go ahead. Well, that, that other thing, this is the other thing that bugs me about this. So sure, we wanted more people in America because it's a big continental nation where everyone speaks English. We wanted to study foreign languages, and that is a purpose of it. But the idea that these two uh, plaintiffs don't have to study foreign languages. My father was raised in a Neapolitan-speaking household, but he was going to go study in Italy. He had to study Italian because what you speak at home is not enough. I mean, why do we send all our kids to English classes? If you're getting PhD dissertations in foreign languages, you know the language better than somebody who just came from there. It's not like they're not studying to learn you know, a higher level of this stuff. It, it, it makes very little sense given the, the level of education and the level of complexity that these folks are going to have to deal with. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic point. We make that point in the, in the lawsuit that, that, look, they are going to benefit from the original point of the statute because in order to study in these foreign countries, they're not just going there, by the way, they're not just going there to study the language. That's not how this works. They're going there to study in their area of expertise in that language. And so there are all kinds of specialized vocabulary that you would need to, to learn that you didn't pick up from mom and dad uh, at, at, at home. Uh, and in addition to specialized vocabulary, there are sometimes there could be uh, different dialects or, or different uh, uh, oh. kinds of Certainly that's true for Mexico and Spain. I know that. I haven't asked Ms. Ahmad about uh, Kuwait and Jordan, but in Mexico and Spain, that's obviously true. Yeah. And and so the idea that somehow you're not going to uh, require some additional mastery of the language or acquire some additional mastery of the language if you are the beneficiary of one of these uh, Fulbright Awards is just is just false. And so the, the new criteria are built on uh, on an erroneous premise. Now, the, the, the basic argument that we're making in the statute, or excuse me, in the lawsuit is that, uh, that the criterion are not acceptable under the statute and that they violate the civil rights of our clients uh, because it, it violates this national origin uh, sort of uh, kind of discrimination. In fact, this isn't a kind of discrimination that we see very often. Uh, in, uh, in in federal lawsuits, I can't I can't remember seeing it very often before. No, you don't you don't see it so often. You don't actually see it so often. And the fact that this sta- this uh, statute was on the books for so long, and then they rejiggered it relatively recently, is kind of it, it's kind of odd. You know, I always wonder what the internal actions of these agencies are to make up such a, such a rule. When did is there any oh, I, I, I think somebody in the agency didn't get a Fulbright when they were uh, in grad school. That's my <laughs> that's my theory. <laughs> Sheer speculation. I have I have no proof of that at all. I should uh, because, hasten to uh, on the other side, you know, they all know English well enough to get into the Fulbright program. So their English is already uh, the, the whole point of this is that, you know, two languages. Right. That's what you have to know. You have to know two languages languages with top-notch facility that's what's going on here 
And so uh, a native English speaker learns it totally in school, but the other person on the other side had to learn English same way. So it, That's right. It That's right. Happened. So it's unacceptable discrimination uh, by the Department of Education, and hopefully NCLA's lawsuit will uh, close the situation. We'll keep you posted. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and uh, I have some happy news to report in our case um, where we represent charter boat fishermen, Mexican Gulf Company versus Commerce, uh, where we lost below on the issue, um, among other things, the Fourth Amendment violation of having all these charter boat fishermen having to put a GPS on their boat and broadcast their whereabouts to the government at all times, whether they're fishing or not. And uh, we believe that is a search and we believe that it is a violation of the constitution and it's outrageous and it is outrageous (laughs) there is no question that's true because there's also no purpose for it uh given given the the statute and the regulatory purpose and all that but we've talked about that before but what happened on uh last week was that three uh, uh different briefs were filed as friend of the court briefs in support of our position mainly on the fourth amendment uh these amicus briefs were very good, and I, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention them. But I I want to discuss a little bit about who put in the briefs and why. And the, the first one I wanna I want to put in is that uh, Liz Morrell, uh, Solicitor General down in um, Louisiana, um, has has uh, gathered together not only Louisiana but also uh, the AGs of Florida and Mississippi and South Carolina, and uh, they put in a just a a marvelous brief that for for uh, for me who I do a lot of fish cases I thought that the level of granularity and knowledge of how the uh, industry works was really really good but what they said was that is that listen these are all our citizens um we 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 have a, a an interest that they're not followed around all the time and um and and the fact of the matter is is that they, they pointed out certain things that we didn't have room for in our brief, but there's one thing they put in here that <clears throat> I will frankly admit I had not thought of at the time, and that is we, we have argued very strongly that not only do they not have a regulatory purpose while you're using the charter boats for fishing, um, but there's a lot of times when you're not fishing. So we put that in there, but what they have in their brief is the idea that there are for certain of these fishing boats – uh, for certain of the charter boats, they only go for one kind of fish for one one point in time. They're not full-time charter boats. Uh, they're like a part-time job. And those people are maybe using their charter boats for fishing just three months for the season. And every other moment of the of the of the time they're on the boat, they're not even ever using the the, the you know, it's not sporadic. It's that it's timeliness, which I think is also an important point. Uh, because the government in its briefs has stated, oh, there's no evidence that anybody uh, isn't uh, always using their charter boats. You can't use it because it's not in the administrative record or hasn't been established. And and it's totally been established, but the 
the uh, brief of the states, I'll call it, uh, uh, of the three states is really clear on this and and how often these folks are not using their boats for this. And that if they were using it for this, that knowing their locations at all time doesn't help with any part of the fishing, because it also po points out how few how few fish they take because, and this is a very good point, a very good point that they make. Um, we make that recreational fishing differs from, from commercial fishing. But one of the reasons is everybody has to take their own fish. They don't sell these fish to anyone. You, you take only the fish you can personally use. So it's not like the, the drain on the resource is going to be as big as if you were selling these in, in commerce and there's going to be, you know, 330 million Americans or, or, you know, 4 billion people overseas. Uh, if you export it, draining the resource, it's just you and your, and your pole, basically. There's a lot and more like hunting out, in that, in that regard. Oh yeah. And they point that, they say, listen, it, it, it's just recreational fishing that these folks aren't even fishermen. All they are is transportation people. It's like an Uber, and and uh, that uh, the Buckeye Institute out of Ohio brought that up as well. That uh, this is basically because here's the other fact that's going on here: the lower court and the government has said that this is a closely regulated industry. Now, what does that mean? That that should mean that well, first of all, it it's is, a falsehood. But sorry, go ahead. That's <laughs> true. But but if if you're going to follow whether or not that there should be be these exceptions. Supreme Court has said they're very rare, and it has had three components. First of all, long-time regulation for, for going back you know, a long time in history. Second of all, pervasive. In the area you are, they regulate you about everything. And then uh, thirdly, the third one is it's got to be something dangerous to the public. So the Supreme Court, you know, if you're making explosives, <laughs> the Supreme Court says, well, explosives have been closely regulated since, you know, 1790 something or something like this. And, and the, the same, um, the, the one I always use is nuclear power. They invented nuclear power and they own the patents and they go out, they can go ahead and say that's closely regulated. But, but the lower courts have sometimes expanded it. Like in California, it's a case where babysitting counts. Um, so we've really got to uh, hit this doctrine. Good night. And babysitting. That's babysitting. I know. So, so, um, so what's gone on here is the, the, the brief of, uh, uh, of Louisiana and the rest of the states really brings this out that these guys are, you know, they have, they have certain regulation, but they're mainly regulated like recreational fisher boats. They have the same type of, of lifeboat, a life jacket you have to put on, but they don't have to have lifeboats like a commercial fisher fisherman does. So it, it was, it was very, it was very well written. It was very well argued and it put in facts that I think are going to greatly help the court. Um, and all three of these briefs, PLF uh, put in the, the um, other one. Oh, I do want to, one last thing about the Louisiana brief. The, the government has made the point that, uh, oh, well, you know, they purchased it. There's this, the law says they have to purchase these GPS and they put it on. And so it's really not a search. And, and, uh, the Louisiana brief says, well, if a guy takes your hand and slaps you in the face with it, we don't say that you slapped yourself in the face. He's responsible for the tort. And I thought that was a nice image. And uh, and in fact, that is exactly what's going on here. So um, that I I hope, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi are in the. Um, uh, oh, no, Alabama stops in the fifth. But but. Um, they are Gulf states, and I hope the Fifth Circuit looks at it really quick. Louisiana is certainly the Fifth Circuit.
Um, and but uh, as I said, Buckeye put one in, and Buckeye Institute is uh, a, a nonprofit that uh, cares about liberty. And they also they pointed out that listen, and and one of the nice things about this brief is it opens with a Hemingway quote from the old man in the sea about how they're using uh, th this is like the uh, the big marlin that got caught in uh, the old man in the sea is 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 what's uh, they're using that. Um, their, their ability to regulate, to, to just have this Marlin there. So he starts with that, and then he ends with, with more Hemingway um, in Hemingway's book on trout fishing. So um, I did enjoy that very much. But th their point as well is that we have to always look at what the government's doing now at sea, they're going to try and do on land. And the Supreme Court has spoken to what happens on terra firma quite often, and they've done it in such a way as to prevent this stuff. So then it goes through very carefully why we allow the Coast Guard to pull over vessels and how none of that um, none of that applies here. Uh, these are not foreign vessels. They're not coming. And that's another thing. This, the Supreme Court, I think, has found that foreign fishing is closely regulated because, you know, since the colonial times, we've nearly had wars over it. Uh, they do nothing but regulate foreign fishing uh, very, very tightly. But that's foreign commercial fish fishing. So um, they, but they point out it's all different. If they don't know where a boat's coming from. If you don't know where a boat's coming from, and it could be a foreign vessel bringing in drugs or illegally doing something, the Coast Guard can pull them over. Doesn't mean you can follow them at all times with a GPS. Um, and and our clients, they always know where our clients are coming from because our clients have to call in and declare where they're leaving from. <laughs> so it's a it's a big uh, it's a big difference. Um, and then we also had a uh, brief, uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation put one in, and they uh, are a property rights uh, organization, and they have uh, a very strong interest in the view that uh, the Fourth Amendment violations of this type are, and, and we agree, but um, are property-based. So if you have, what is a boat? It is an effect. The Fourth Amendment says that you're protected in your person, papers, and effects. And it's very clear that a vehicle, it's always been clear, it's Supreme Court uh, precedent, that a vehicle is an effect, uh, as that term was used back back in colonial times. So, um, or I should say at the time of the founding, right? So uh, what is an effect? Well, a boat is certainly an effect. And we made this point, but they go through on what the violation of the property is, if they can seize any bit of your property like this and put this on there, you, that type of right shouldn't even be, this is your point, Mark, it shouldn't matter about closely regulated. Closely regulated industry has to do with your interest in privacy. Like you, you always expect the guy looking over your shoulder if you're a closely regulated industry. Right. Um, but that, that analysis has no effect on whether or not your property has been uh, taken over by the government. That, right. That it, yeah. If, if there's a trespass in terms of, of the invasion uh, that's going on, then it doesn't matter whether there was an expectation of privacy or not. That's right. And they note that, and this is a, a law school point, but it's, it's, it's bears repeating that one of the main rights of property is the right to exclude. You, you you can keep people off of your property. You can have people not take your stuff, not go on your computer. You know, you have the right to keep people out. And uh, 
and and so what the government is doing is is trespassing on that right. They're just taking that part of the bundle of rights by not letting you exclude them from your property to put on the device, um, which is a very good point. And and um, you know it, it is there's basically a fight, and I, I should explain this. There 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 are two sort of streams of Fourth Amendment. Uh, precedent and one sort of privacy based uh like cats was a phone booth you went in the phone booth to talk could the government get your uh could they could they eavesdrop on you in the phone booth and they said nah in phone booths we have an expectation of privacy now some of you younger people may not have ever seen how they worked but they used to be a little more private now if you can find a phone booth good luck to you but the technology changes and, and the constitutional interpretation has to bring it back what they were originally protecting. We'll be back in a little bit, and I thank all of our amicus for putting those in.